My name's Troy, and I'm one of the leaders here at our Kettlebrook family. Um, glad you're here. We are a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. And uh, this morning we are finishing up a series called uh, God Is, where we've been going through the character of God. I just want to begin with um, just a reference to a, an illustration. I'm reading a book right now called The Drama of Scripture. Um, and in this book, they begin, kind of page one, using an illustration from a, from a guy named Alistair McIntyre who wrote a book called After Virtue. And in this, this book, After Virtue, he tells this story. And I want to I tell it, and they reference it here. I want you to imagine yourself at a bus stop. Gary got a picture of a bus stop up here. It might be a little bit hard for us to do here in Jackson. I don't know how many of you ride the bus regularly. But anyway, there's a bus stop. You know what a bus stop is. Imagine yourself at a bus stop, and a man comes up to you, and he says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus. Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Now, the meaning of that sentence is clear enough, but what in the, what in the world is he talking about? The, the conversation can only be understood if placed in a broader framework of meaning or basically a bigger story that makes sense of it. And McIntyre gives three potential narratives to make his point. So in potential narrative number one, the man who came up to you and said, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, 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 has mistaken you for someone else he just saw yesterday at the library who happened to come up and ask him, hey, by chance, do you know the Latin name of the common wild duck? So, so now when, you, when he comes up and says the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, it makes sense, right? So that, that is narrative number one. Narrative number two, the man who came up to you and said this has just come from a session with his psychotherapist. Um, bear with me, um, who's dealing with an extreme uh, introvertedness, uh, you, you are, and so you go to your psychotherapist, and your psychotherapist says, hey, I want you to go out and talk to strangers. And you say, what do I say? And your therapist says, anything. Okay? Which, by the way, horrible counsel. Uh, probably need to get a different therapist because you are being set up to fail if you kind of walk out and say this. Anyway, but if that happens, it kind of makes sense of the story, right? Third potential narrative, man comes up to you and says this, is that the man is a Russian spy who has arranged to meet his contact at the bus stop at precisely this time, and the code phrase by which is going to reveal his identity is this phrase of the common duck's name. See, without context like that, the guy's comment makes no sense, right? Now, those leveraging this illustration, both the guys that write this book as well as McIntyre, the point that they make is this. The meaning of the encounter at the bus stop depends on the story that shapes it. In fact, each story gives the event a different meaning. And they say this is also true of human life. In order to make sense of our lives, we depend on some story that provides the broader framework of meaning for all of our lives. Now, to give you a more concrete example of this, uh, about a month and a half ago, I was roped into coaching one of my son's flag football teams. And so um, there's 10 boys, third and fourth graders, and the first night of practice I get there, and there's one of the boys is really struggling to throw a pass, to throw the football, and to catch it. He's not really able to do either of those things. And I've coached enough of these uh, things at this age where I, I, a, for, a story forms in my mind, uh, just for a second, I'm like, I wonder if, if it's where one of those things where the parents want him to play football, but he doesn't want to be there, right? You know what I'm talking about? You can, you, so, so that story goes in my head for a minute. I don't know. So I'm like, okay, maybe that's what's going on. We'll find out. In the meantime, my lovely wife, Stephanie, she's over on the sidelines, and she is just meeting the parents and she is hearing their stories and she comes home that night and she says hey honey i gotta tell you the story um this boy i talked to her his mom 
And his mom told me that her husband, the boy's father, was in active military duty and five years ago was killed. And so now, see how that reframes the understanding of, of what I what of what I understand the boy not being able. He doesn't have a dad that was throwing him how to showing him how to throw a football, how to catch a football. Then it then changed my understanding of how I kind of thought and inter- interacted with him because what I did was I asked him and his mother I say, hey, can you come? Would you be willing to come 30 minutes early? to practice each time because I'd love to spend extra time working with you in this. And it's one of the reasons why I also taught his mom. I said, I want to teach you how to throw a football so you can do this with your son. Now, I'm, I'm hoping that regardless of which story was the, the narrative, I would have done that anyway. But it does really reframe things when you understand that broader narrative. McIntyre says this, we can only answer the question, what are we to do, if we can answer the prior question, what story do we find ourselves to be a part of? Okay. Now, as we finish up the series, the character of God, God is, these are some of the questions I want us to be wrestling through. What is the story that we understand our lives to be part of? What is the grander narrative that shapes who we are and what we do? Because whether you know this or not, what you believe about who God is or who God is not shapes what you believe about who you are and what you do. Now, we are exploring God and his character through a song. It's 3,000 years old, Psalm 103. I think we have a slide, Gary, of what page that's on. It's on page 421 in the Story of God Bibles. would please encourage you to grab a Bible and follow along with me. We're just going to read the last four verses of this. We've read through up to this point and um, want to finish with just the last four verses. So uh, I want to pray and then read this. And I'd actually ask you, can you stand with me while I read Scripture? Let me pray first. Father, we pray that anything, more than anything that I say, the words that we are about to read would do what you promise, which is they would not return void, but they would sink into our hearts, convict us, encourage us, equip us, and empower us by your Spirit. pray this in Christ's name. Verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. You can have a seat. So, as I mentioned before, David is concluding here uh, this psalm. Obviously, it's ended there. And what we've seen in the past four weeks is that the framework and narrative of, what, of who God is has been played out like this. God is a redeemer or forgiver. God is compassionate. God is father. And, and here, David makes it abundantly clear that God is also king. If God is king, that frames the narrative that we have. And when I think about David writing about God as king, I think David writes from a really unique perspective because he's one of the few people in history that can write from the perspective of a king. None of us in this room can, can write as a king. David can write about God establishing his throne in a different way than you and I because David established a throne of his own, like he had a kingdom. In fact, we even have a picture roughly of what that looked like. This is, you know, the Davidic kingdom. We've got maps. We know where his borders, where his jurisdiction ended. The context, though, that that David gives us here is that God establishes a throne that is over all. In other words, there's no no, limits to his jurisdiction. 
So God's not like, there's not like parts of, of God's sovereignty that don't exist. Meaning that it's not like Hades has the realm of the underworld and Poseidon can oversee the seas. God, does ha- God has no borders to his kingdom. Some of you may or may not be aware, but uh, this last week, the mayor of West Bend, uh, Craig Zdanico, who's been mayor since 2011, resigned from his role as mayor, effective immediately. And the reason he did that is because not only is Craig uh, the mayor, but he's also the owner of a construction company, and there's been a huge development that's going to go downtown. And basically what happened was he's, he's recognized, he's like, I can't do both of these jobs at the same time. I need to step away from this job as mayor so that I can be, so I can run my company for the, for the sake of this development. He recognized there's a conflict of interest there, and with integrity, I think he stepped back. Now, regardless of, of what you think about politics and mayors and all that stuff, I tell this story because um, that's not the same with God. God doesn't have a, a conflict of interest. God's character is perfectly just and merciful. God's character is perfectly wrathful and loving at the same time. There's, there's no, there's no um, conflict of interest there. And there's, again, there's no borders. It's not like he's like, okay, I'm not sovereign over here at this time. I want to be over here. He's not, like, he's not like Mufasa and Simba. Okay, like everything that the light touches except that part over there. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's, not, how God, that's not how God is. God has no borders to his kingdom. So knowing this, David then is, is praising God, and he says, praise the Lord. He started off this psalm, he's saying, praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise. He keeps going back to this praise. And if um, he says, praise the Lord, all you angels and heavenly hosts. Praise or bless the Lord. And if you were, um, if you were here in week one, you saw that he, meant, he said praise. Praise also is a, a word that means bless, and even more literally it means kneel. And so what David is saying is, kneel, all you angels and all you heavenly hosts, before the Lord. Now, I want to do a quick time out here and talk about angels, so we get, make sure we get the right perspective of angels. Angels are not cute, chubby babies, okay? Can we just, I just want you to know that angels, I know we think like, we, we think, oh, angels, ah, oh, that's not scriptural. We, angels, it'd be like, oh, angels, ah, okay, like, there's a big difference, these are majestic beings that do the will of God, that obey him, that serve him, that do his bidding. These majestic creatures. David's saying, if these majestic creatures, you should be praising the Lord, blessing God because of who he is, then, of course, we are to do the same ourselves. And so David, as a king, with a throne, with a kingdom, understands God is the real king who has the real throne. And that's how he understands his story. And he continues on in verse 22. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Again, every, all, lots of superlatives here. Everywhere God is to be praised. You know, when Jesus came, one of the first things that Jesus said was he said, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. And then Jesus taught, and he, he used stories and illustrations. He's always talking, and he began, so often he began his stories, he would start like this. He would say, the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like, and we talk about the kingdom. In fact, I talked about this book, The Drama of Scripture, Finding Our Place in the Biblical Story. If you were to open this book up and look at the way they say this is the entire drama of Scripture, it folds out like this. Gary, that next slide. Act 1, God establishes his kingdom. Act 2, rebellion in the kingdom. Act 3, God chooses, sorry, the king chooses Israel. There's this interlude 
a kingdom story waiting for an ending. That's the intertestamental period. Act 4, the coming of the king. Act 5, spreading the news of the king. And Act 6, the return of the king. And basically, the point of these guys in this book is if you want to think about the entire grander narrative, you're going to be thinking about a king and his kingdom. David was in Act 3. We live in Act 5 right now. But what's interesting, I think, about this is when we think about God's kingdom and we think about God as king in our in our experience in our lives, we may actually question and we go, hey, is God really sovereign? Because, Troy, if God's sovereign, then how come I see suffering? God, how come, or, or like, how come there's pain and oppression and poverty? Does God, is there elements that are actually outside of God's purview? Like, Troy, Troy why adultery? Why abandonment? Why these things? If God truly is sovereign, if he's truly king, then why are these things the case? And I think if we're really honest, we've got to wrestle through that. And I think it's okay to wrestle through this. Because we wonder, is, is there a place outside of God's borders in his jurisdiction? Well, to, I think, address that or wrestle through that, we've got to back up just a little bit. I spent the majority of my uh, childhood years growing up on a dairy farm. Some of you may know that. Uh, but if you don't, now you do. So I grew up on a dairy farm. And on our farm, we had two different barns. We had the main barn, that's the milking barn, uh, and then we had what's called a heifer barn. Now, some of you may not know, if you, you're not around agriculture, you may not know what a heifer barn in is, but that's where the heifers go. And you're like, I don't know what a heifer is. That's okay. Heifer is a teenage cow. Okay, and I want you to think about this. Think about teenagers and think about really dumb animals and then put them together. Okay, that's what, that's what heifers are. Okay, that's what you get when you get heifers. So anyway, there's a heifer barn, and the heifers were on the bottom part, and above the heifer barn was what was called the hay mow, and you'd make, we made hay in the summer, you'd have usually three or four different crops of it, and you'd bale it into rectangular bales, about this big, and they'd go up, you'd bring them in, you'd go up through an elevator, this machine that would be able to take them up, in through a hole in the top of the hay mow, and drop it about two and a half stories down to the ground, and then we'd Tetris these things. You'd stack them, and you'd move them until you could basically build this gigantic cube of bales. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea. I'm trying to give you a picture. But what was cool about the hay mow is once you got that thing built up about two and a half stories high, you had the coolest fort for like nine whole months. It was amazing. It got lower and lower each time. But if you wanted to make a couch, if you wanted to have stairs, if you wanted to have a little living room in there, if you wanted to build a tunnel, you could do all that stuff, right? Now, <clears throat> I loved, loved having forts in the haymow. Let me ask this. Raise your hand if at some point in your life you had a fort somewhere. Raise your hand if you had a fort. Okay. I, I see all of you raising your hands. Someone tell me about your fort. Where was your fort? Yeah. Kelly. Yes. You, you put the blankets over so they hang over the side, right? Because then you got walls around that table. Yeah, excellent. I totally know where you're coming from. What else? Yeah, Rick. Oh, yeah. So it was like a snow fort with a refrigerator boxes. That's, that's awesome. You, could, you remember yourself right now. You're like, oh, I have great memories of being in the fort. Give me one more. Who else? Yeah. You dug a bunker in your back. Exactly. So you dig a bunker. There's, there's that too. You know, we, we love forts. Now, um, my children are, are not uh, privy to a mow, a hay mow. And so like Kelly, 
they, what they do is they build the forts using blankets and other things. Almost every piece of furniture that we have in the house becomes a fort in the basement. But this piece of thing, this is my daughter Chloe's gymnastics pad. This becomes the primary base of operations, okay? So you put this up, and then you put a blanket over the top. And then you're in your fort. And then you look out for your brothers. Right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. We love forts. Now, one of the reasons I think that we love forts is because ever since early on from a very young age, we tell ourselves a story, a grander narrative. And that grander narrative is is that we want to have a space that we have dominion over. We want to have a place where we have that we're basically king or queen of our kingdom. And we, we do this, so we build forts. Now, we kind of chuckle at these little, you know, things and go, oh, that's crazy. Kelly used to go under the table. <laughs> you know, but we chuckle at that, but it doesn't change when we get older. We still build forts. They're just more expensive. Okay? They're just more elaborate, and they just take more time to build. Okay? Because our forts are maybe not uh, mat- mats like this, but maybe our forts are our careers. But what's that? The she shed? Oh, the man cave. There you go. <laughs> I feel like the Muppets. <laughs> These two guys in the back. Hey, how'd you figure that? <laughs> that was funny. Sorry, guys. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Where was I? No, one of the reasons we love to build forts is because I think we just want to have that domain, okay? Our, our forts get bigger. There are careers. There are degrees. There are bank accounts. There are home or our homes, even better yet. There are hobbies and toys, our sports, our health, our body image, okay? And we can move the bales around a little bit. We can, we can try to do the, build the walls up. And we get inside of this fort, and we're in here. We're king, and we're queen. This is what happened in the beginning. And it's what still happens today. See, see, here's what happened in the beginning. God gave this vast expanse of this most amazing garden to his creation to Adam and Eve. Okay? And he said, you can have, you can steward over all of it with the exception of one tree that's outside your domain. He said, there's one tree that's really outside your domain, and they couldn't deal with it. They're like, no, no, we have to grasp that. We have to be king over that, too. And so they, they tried to grasp it. And they were kicked out of the garden. And ever since, we've been building forts, trying to reestablish our kingdoms and our domains and our dominions. In, this, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's this period of time before King David called the time of the Judges. And if you read through the book of Judges, what's amazing, you just, you just got to go, you can almost skip the whole book and go to the last sentence and find out what's been happening in the whole book. It's right here. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, he or she. Sometimes people, I hear people say, like, oh, I don't know, the Bible is very relevant. This is the same thing that happens today. It really hasn't changed that much. So often we just do what we see fit. What we do, it's what we do at home. It's what we do when we're at work, when we're, we're uh, in our neighborhood, when we're in class or on the field. We try to tell ourselves a different story where we are sovereign, where we establish our throne and our kingdom, but there are at least, there's a bunch, but there's at least two downsides to this. I want to give you two downsides to doing this thing in our lives. First one is this. One of the downsides is if we're king and queen, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work maintaining the kingdom. 
We might find ourselves really stressed and really anxious because when everything depends on us, it gets a little weighty. When we're the center of our kingdom, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of pressure. And so we have to maintain control of our kingdom. You know, when Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I think he meant a lot of things by that. But one of the things I think he meant was, hey, hey, I think you might be tired from trying to wear that crown. Is it heavy? Because I should really be wearing it. Let me take it for you. Because I can rule really a lot better than you anyway. Now, that, that's not what he would say. He would sound less, you know, arrogant than that. That's how sometimes I feel like we should hear him there. It's like, hey, put the crown down. Come to me. I can, I can run this better than you. So that's one downside. We have to control everything. Number two, though, and one of the reasons why I think we have so much of the pain and suffering that we do have is because when we're sovereign, when we build these little forts like this, everyone else is a threat because everyone else has got one of these right here and one right over here, and we're like, well, now, wait a minute. Are you encroaching on my kingdom? What are you doing? Every single person becomes a threat to our authority. It's like they're waiting for a coup that we are trying to defend ourselves. And so we gnaw at each other. We come at the kingdoms next to us. We fight. We wrestle for that. And it's why we have so much suffering. It's why we have so much oppression as we try to to take that which is not even ours and control it and then use it over this. And then, and then when, when someone tries to take us or they try to do, like, if they don't recognize our sovereignty, we become offended. If someone doesn't recognize our little kingdom and we're not affirmed in it, we become offended. I'll give you a, a, an illustration of this. About a month ago, I don't know if any of you watch uh, soccer, uh, there's a European championship uh, qualifying soccer match um, between France and Albania. I don't know if you heard this story or not, but just like any game they were playing in France, just like any game before the game, they lined up like this. This is the Albanian team, and they're going to play the national anthem, right? Play the national anthem for each team. And so France was hosting, and they began by playing the national anthem for the Albanian team. The problem was the music that they played was the national anthem for Andorra, which, by the way, you may not know this, there's actually a country called Andorra, and they have their own national anthem, and it's not the same as the Albanian one, okay? So so the, all the fans that were there, all the Albanian fans, which was like a lot, there, I think there was like 12,000 fans, they were just mad, right? They're furious, and the players are furious. In fact, the players refuse to take the field until they play the Albanian national anthem. And so the guy who's on the loudspeaker, who's got the mic like this over the whole stadium, he tries to help out. And so he says, um, ladies and gentlemen, we are very sorry to all the Armenian fans. Please be respectful while we play the Armenian national anthem. Now, if you didn't catch that, Armenia is also a country that's not Albania, okay? So, so like, you want to talk about being offended. The Albanians are just like, are you kidding me right now? There's this deep offense that happened. And, 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 and I, I think there's something in us that, that causes that. It's not just even at a national level, but there is something about our national entity, or our national identity that, that's part of our domain. And so we're identified with it. But it even goes down to a more of an individual level. This last week I had a friend who owns a couple of cousins. He was on Facebook, and, and I just happened to be on. I don't go on a lot, but I saw he had posted a thank you note someone had sent to him. Um, and it said, Dear Kevin, and his name is Keith. 
So anyway, he's like, I don't know how many times people are calling me Kevin. So anyway, I was I was laughing because he wasn't trying to, he wasn't mad. He was just laughing because people were calling him Kevin. But there's something inside of each one of us. are like, that's not my name. You know, I used to get called Tony all the time. Dave's brother, Tony. We kind of look alike, but I got I get Tony. I kind of look like a Tony, don't I? No, no, okay. There's something in us that sees that identity, and we, we, we were made. See, here's the thing. We were made to be part of a dominion. We were made to be given a name. But that dominion is the kingdom of God, and the name is beloved that we were meant to be given by the Father. You know, when, when, um, when David wrote in, in verse 22 that it said, the Lord, praise the Lord, all his works. That word works can also be translated as workmanship. And as I was studying this week, I was like, you know what? The Apostle Paul wrote a thousand years later after this to the church in Ephesus. And I don't think he was, um, I don't think it's ironic, but he called, he said this. Here's what he said. For we are God's, what's it say? We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's like, no, no, God prepared in advance all these things. He's the king. He's given you a domain. He's given you things to do in his kingdom. He's given you a name, your beloved. He's established the context of our stories. So if we went back to the bus stop, I want you to imagine yourself at the bus stop. This time someone doesn't come up and they don't say, they don't talk about ducks. They say these words. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Guy just walks up to you and says, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And you're kind of like, What's the story? What's the narrative? There's a narrative behind that. Why is he saying that? I want to give you the narrative. Just briefly. Long ago, there was a king with a kingdom. He was a creator king. And he created his creation to praise and bless him because he was the only one worthy of praise, to be in relationship with him. And they did. But not for long. Soon, they rejected their king for no other reason than they wanted to assume the throne themselves. And so the king cast them from his kingdom, but promised that he would make a way back into that kingdom. And then his creation, cast out of his kingdom, began to try to establish their own little kingdoms everywhere that they went, fighting for territory, for power, for affirmation, and never receiving any of those things, never being content, always at war from within and without. And that continued until the king himself returned and came to show them the way back. He had promised he would make a way back. He came to show the way back. They rejected him again. This time they killed him. What they didn't recognize is he knew that was going to happen. And the killing itself was actually the way back. That it was him exchanging his life for theirs. That it was him exchanging his obedience for their rebellion. And one by one, his creation began to discover this truth. And as a result, when they discovered this, they took down their forts. And they realized again the king that they were made for and who the king really was. And when they realized that, they had this line that kept coming to them. 
this, this, this phrase, and the phrase was, do you want to guess? Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my inmost being. Praise him in his name. If you're here today, I need to share with you, this is the framework of your story, whether you know it or not. That is the framework of every story of every human on this planet. If you're here today and you know that that's the framework, it should then shape everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we know about who we are. You know, when when Jesus asked Peter, he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? I don't really know. I don't think that was necessarily just a test. I think it was an essential question that not only Peter had to answer, but that every one of us has to answer. Who do you say that I am? And there is an answer to that question. Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one because he's the king. The answer is, who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. The answer is, you are the king of kings. You hold authority. You have the ultimate throne. We say, Troy, I don't know. Is God sovereign over all these things? Is he sovereign? Because I see suffering. I see oppression. I see pain. Yes, God is still sovereign over that because he came and entered into each one of those saying, I am going to be a part of poverty. I'm going to be a part of oppression. I'm going to be a part of suffering so that I can overcome it and prove to you that I am greater than it. And so this ancient song that David wrote begins and ends the same way. Praise the Lord, O my soul. If this is the case, just the four things that came to mind as I was thinking through this this week. I just want to ask you some questions. I'm going to give you a few minutes to wrestle through this when I'm done. So if any of these questions stick out to you to wrestle through, I'm going to give you a couple minutes to wrestle through them between you and God. First question, what is the broader framework of your story? If someone asked you, what is the narrative that frames who you are and what you do, how would you answer that? Secondly, if you would answer it the way that David does and understand God as these things, how well are you doing it actually living in light of that story? How well are you actually doing it living out your identity? See, Ryan talked about God as father a couple of weeks ago. If God is father and he's also king, do, do you understand what that means? If God is father and king, that makes, that makes us royalty, that makes us co-heirs of Christ, that makes us princes and princesses in the kingdom. If you understand your framework in that story, how well are you living that out? And how well are you listening to other stories so you can point them to that bigger story? That's the second one. How well are you listening to other stories? Third, I've got to get my mats back. Are there still areas of your life that you are building a fort around? Are there still areas that you say, you know what? I want to do what's right in my own eyes. God, you can be sovereign over this part of my life, but you can't be sovereign over this part of my life. Maybe it's your love life. Maybe it's your money. I don't know. But are there areas of your life you're like, no, 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 I've got this. This is my fort. This is my kingdom. Jesus wants to show you, no, no, I've got a better way than this. My kingdom is far greater than that. Lastly, whose anthem are you singing? Are you praising the Lord with all your soul? Or are you seeking to have your own praises sung? I think we should wrestle through this. So if the Spirit spoke to you in any of those questions, just give you a couple of minutes. Greg's going to play uh, some instrumental. Have you think about that, and then we're going to respond um, by singing God's praises. So let me pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you that you are not, um, there's no boundaries to your kingdom. Thank you, Father, that you do not have a conflict of interest because your character is perfect. Thank you, Father, that um, you sent your son to show us the way back to the kingdom. Father, we confess together, we confess that we are each of us guilty of building forts in our lives where we want to do what's right in our own eyes. May we hear by your spirit the voice of the one who came to call us back to the kingdom, to show us a better way, a bigger kingdom, a better identity. May we never forsake that identity, but live in light of it. Father, we're going to be tested with that a number of times probably before we build this or leave this building today. In conversations we're going to have, in interactions that are going to cause us to say, hey, is someone coming at our fort? That's going to happen today, probably 15 times. By your Spirit, Father, empower us to respond based on the identity that you seek to give us in Christ Jesus as we are your workmanship created in advance by you and prepared in advance to do these things for your sake and your glory. May we praise you, bless you, kneel before you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.